in the grand scheme of this great big world, Israel is just not an easy tax jurisdiction to classify. Of course, that distinction extends far beyond global taxes. And before we go down that road, obviously, there are far more qualified podcasts to dissect any and all geopolitical angles. But did you know that it's one of the biggest startup tech hotbeds on the planet? Did you know that despite this factoid, its economic conditions still often fall under the umbrella term emerging market, which I guess makes sense considering position in the region, but that probably says everything you need to know about the clumsiness of umbrella terms. Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song joins us to discuss. But first, in speaking of everything you need to know, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're going to plant three CPE code words throughout this episode. Send all three to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's The Fiona Show, all one word, at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Planning a wedding, vacation, and even Thanksgiving have all been halted this year. But what about planning for transfer pricing documentation changes? It's still on in Zambia. The African country has a few things on its agenda, launching country-by-country reporting for multinationals and reducing the number of companies that must provide transfer pricing documentation. As it stands, local companies with turnover of 20 million kwacha, or roughly a little under a million U.S. dollars, are required to file contemporaneously, and there is talk of bumping it up to 50 million or 2.4 million U.S. dollars. In a world where everything seems to be moving at a slower pace, Zambia is not wasting time. The amendments will go into action on January 1st, 2021. Some things are better left unchanged. India's Central Board of Taxes announced that it will be maintaining its current transfer pricing tolerance range, the acceptable variation between the arm's length price and the transaction price, specifically 1% for wholesale trading and 3% for other intercompany transactions that occurred before the financial year end of March 31st, 2020. Stay within that tolerance range and the tax authority won't make transfer pricing adjustments. What qualifies as wholesale trading? Glad you asked. The purchase cost of finished goods must be at least 80% or more of the trading activity's total cost. Every month's average closing inventory is required to be 10% or less of the sales related to trade activities. I know what you're thinking. How has the range remained the same while the rest of the world is up in flames? And here's the answer. The global pandemic did not upset India's financial year 2019 to 2020 as much as expected. However, the government will bring the reality of pandemic business disruption and losses into its determination of the tolerance range of the next accounting year. Nothing is ever set in stone, just ask the OECD. The organization recently released new methodology for country-by-country peer review. It's saying goodbye to the previous version, which was introduced in 2017 and expired this September. 
Here's what countries can expect to see in the latest edition, a detailed framework for checking countries' compliance with the BEPS minimum standard and instructions on how to obtain and review data for peer reviews. While the methodology is getting an update, the latest version contains elements from the 2017 version, including terms of reference. It also comes with a self-assessment questionnaire, as if there wasn't enough paperwork already, to learn more about each jurisdiction's current process and execution. While the reporting standard is is an obvious resource for tax administrations, it has an individualized benefit too. It forces companies to look at their own transfer pricing downfalls and tie up any loose strings before auditors swoop in and do it for you. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And we have Mimi Song, Chief Economist from Cross-Border Solutions, with us again, this time to discuss the jurisdiction of Israel. But before we get there, and this is close to home because Mimi lives right around me, uh, let's catch up on what's going on with COVID where you're located. Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned that the kids are going back to school and they have these different cohorts. And I just got a notification this morning that the morning cohort one of the children are, are quarantining just because of exposure so i think it's interesting the environment that we're operating in because at least we're we're in a much more calm state of readiness if you will and so yeah. the school is being communicative there are measures being taken into place just to make sure that it's not going to create another outbreak, if you will. It's always good to see folks being proactive. And in speaking of being proactive, what drew you to transfer pricing? I think it's more of a match between the the degree I got in college and thinking, what am I going to do with economics, right? right. <laughs> and, and, and seeing an opportunity that says, hey, do you want to be an economist? I said, huh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> But as you've, you you mention a lot, especially when we get to the documentation process that transfer pricing gives this 10,000 foot view of a company that you can't really get anywhere else in a lot of documentation processes or even a lot of tax processes. But even that 10,000 foot view, that's incredibly informative, especially for somebody already trained uh, as an economist. Yes, that's that's right. I think transfer pricing is is such a a unique subject area because it's not focused on one particular industry and you just get this broad-based perspective and there's no one right answer and 
And I'll tell you, I mean, I have a brain that's geared towards excelling in math, okay? And, mm-hmm. and, and so that means very logical, one plus one equals two. And yet, I was drawn to transfer pricing, even though it's not one plus one equals two. It's sort of, well, one plus one could equal two, but maybe you have to apply some adjustments here and you have to <laughs> think about adjustments there. And, you know, where is that one located, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what does it look like? I think we can tailor this a little bit more to the COVID era, especially because that's been a big change for this entire industry. But what mistakes do you see multinational companies making repeatedly, especially in this climate? I'm going to readjust your question a little bit and focus it on, you know, what have I seen? What kind of mistakes have I seen this particular year? Right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I think, I think what I see a lot of companies do is they forget that the transfer pricing policies and frameworks should probably be reevaluated in light of COVID because the basic premise of transfer pricing, and I say this all the time is make sure that you are interacting with your related parties as if you were unrelated, as if they were third parties, right? And what's right. one of the things that a lot of companies had to do, given the, the financial impact of, of COVID, is they had to renegotiate the third-party contracts. They had to renegotiate their vendor contracts. They had to renegotiate their customer contracts. There was a lot of renegotiating happening so that all businesses wouldn't just suffer given the current current market conditions. And I think a lot of companies perhaps forgot that their related party contracts and you know policies, the framework, should have also been evaluated over the ter- course of this year or monitored more closely. Of course. Now, uh, turning to our subject of Israel, let's start with the overall rating. How aggressive is the Israeli tax authority? What is the likelihood of a transfer pricing audit? Yeah, Israel, you may be surprised to know, but the, the risk is high. I think there is a very high risk of a transfer pricing audit in Israel. And it's it's been a, an area where transfer pricing has been at the forefront, right? There are many foreign subsidiaries operating in Israel that have a higher likelihood of being audited because they are foreign in nature. So there's there's sort of this target of, okay, or nationalistic view, if you will, to target multinationals that have headquarters outside of Israel, right? Right. And and there's a lot more enforcement as it relates to the transfer pricing environment and legislation. So it is a hot zone for transfer pricing audits these days. Interrupting very briefly for our very first CPE code word, and that code word is Agnon, as in A-G-N-O-N, and Shmuel Yosef Agnon, Israel-born winner of the 1966 Nobel Prize in Literature. Back to our conversation. As a member of the OECD, like so many others, the actual policies they have don't perfectly align. What are those differences and what do they say about Israel's economic goals? So generally speaking, the rules do align relatively nicely with respect to the OECD guidelines. I I think there are nuances, right, in terms of the way that they want to look at things. For example, you know, are they going to look at an interquartile range 
Or are they going to look at three years versus a three-year weighted average range versus a single year? The idea of whether or not regional comparables or local comparables are acceptable, right? And so these are, these are those country-specific decisions that need to be made in terms of what they feel is most representative of an arm's-length situation or arm's length pricing or the application of the arm's length principle at the end of the day. Um, And so Israel's perspective on that, they are also one of those countries, I think that they're still in the process of understanding, peeling away the layers of the onion, if you will, as it pertains to transfer pricing and the application to the various multinationals operating in their jurisdiction, right? And so They have this propensity to lean towards wanting to see a cup method or that transactional-based method. And so they they like to see that. And then they've they've not taken a hard line on the comparable position, but they've taken a position where there is this desire to make sure that the comparables – are in fact aligned with the market conditions as they exist in Israel, right? Because right. the environment is is different than you know different than than perhaps like an emerging market like Malaysia or a, a developed market like the U.S. So they kind of, of fall somewhere in the middle there, right? Yeah, it, it, we kind of reached the point where. Uh, the sheer political economy of all things having to do with Israel and the entire region, the Middle East, end up coming into play. And then a lot of generalized terms like emerging markets, eh, it doesn't really quite apply, but also situation kind of speaks for itself. Has the country adopted BEPS Action 13? They have. And, and you know, just to re-educate our, our listeners here, I, I'm sure they know what Action 13 is, but once again, it's it's the documentation framework, the three-tiered approach to documentation, the master file, the local file, and the country-by-country reporting. Um, And so Israel is actually part of the inclusive framework when it comes to the BEPS action plan. And so they definitely have adopted Action 13, which is one of those minimum standards. And, And they have explicit sections of their particular tax code. I believe it's 85B and 85C that references that BEPS action plan, right? So they have adopted those requirements. They have also become a party to the the MCAA or the the multilateral competent authority agreement that where where basically they've agreed to exchange all the information on country by country reporting. Of course. Now, what are the transfer pricing documentation requirements in Israel? So the transfer pricing documentation requirements are very much similar to what you might see in the OECD guidelines, right? The idea of you have to have an overview of the business, you have to have an overview of the controlled transactions, you have to basically prepare the documentation. And once they come and audit you and request that documentation, you have 60 days to adhere, right? Um, You have 60 days to actually produce that documentation or or file it with them as they call it. You may not necessarily need 
be filed explicitly with your tax return, but the terminology is that they're looking for you to file it once they request it. Um, now, what's really interesting that the, the Israeli tax authority, and I'll, I'll call them the ITA going forward, so the ITA, they had actually published a tax circular earlier this year, sometime in June, where they basically said, hey, your documentation, once we ask for it and once you file that documentation, it needs to meet all of our requisite standards or else we're going to shift the burden of proof back onto you and we're, gonna, we're basically going to throw out the report and it's not going to matter. And that really leaves a taxpayer pretty pretty naked um, from a defense perspective, right? Because the transfer pricing report really is that first line of defense. Right. We see this uh, employed in a lot of jurisdictions, but that leeway seems a little bit more generous than we see a lot of countries that tend to use the carrot of the actual rules don't seem to be that much of a pain. But, you know, if we ask for something, it's 60 days and the hammer comes down if anything's misaligned. So 60 days is, is pretty generous when it comes to the documentation requirement. But and, and I do wonder whether or not that's going to change, because if a taxpayer, in fact, has 60 days, then it does challenge that notion of of having contemporaneous documentation, which is to have it prepared by the time your tax return is filed. It's not explicit. And then if you have 60 days, does that give you a sufficient amount of time to meet that requirement? You know, it, it, it could, I would have to say 60 days is a good amount of time to do that. But, you know, the only thing to keep in mind is that in these types of jurisdictions where not, it's not as explicit in terms of the documentation requirements in and of themselves and, and the timing of that, remember, they still have an explicit form that has to be filed with the corporate income tax return, which actually is a declaration by the management of the Israeli companies related to the intercompany transaction. It's a declaration that explicitly is there to make sure that companies are paying attention to their company transactions and that they understand the, the rules as it pertains to intercompany dealings. Uh, and so they're, they're putting the responsibility back onto the taxpayer. And, and in speaking of the specific forms in what the ITA asks of them, there are very specific points, especially with the tax returns uh, that mention transfer pricing. What are they and what does it indicate to taxpayers about Israel's focus on transfer pricing? Basically, there's the form, which is, I think, form 1385, right? Every every country has its own form nomenclature. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is not a new form. So let's just, let's all get on the same page here. It's not necessarily a new form, but in a lot of countries, this is the case that the visibility into the actual intercompany transactions is not a novel concept. It's BEPS Action 13 has enhanced the requirements as it pertains to the transparency of intercompany dealings, okay? So the form in and of itself, it is, it is a short description of the various intercompany transaction details. It's also meant to provide some visibility into where are the counterparties, where 
do they reside? What are the transaction volumes? And then the signature, right? That declaration is ultimately to hold the local entity accountable that, hey, these intercompany transactions were conducted at arm's length. That accountability or declaration in a country like Israel, it, it holds a little, it's, it's very significant because is, you know, I don't know about you, Matt, but if you were in Israel and, and you were the controller and you were asked to sign a form that ultimately declares to the Israeli government, hey, I'm, I'm going to attest that these intercompany transactions were conducted at arm's length. Now, uh, in speaking of that 1385 form, last July, the ITA uh, released an update to that form. What are the updated form features? So there are additional elements that were included in that form, right? And so this is where the influence of BEPS Action 13 comes into play because the additional elements include information that you would have to have in your local file documentation and your analysis, like what is the pricing method? What kind of PLI was actually being applied? Profit level indicator, just for any novice listeners, right? You actually have to have your documentation or you have to have a policy or some sort of planning study in order to be able to articulate what the method being applied is, okay? You also have to provide additional information about the counterparties to the transaction and the different jurisdictions. And a lot of that, you know, goes to the fact that more and more tax authorities are sharing information. Are they perhaps policing intercompany transactions on a global basis these days? I don't know, but that level of detail allows them to do that. And then there are additional components requested in terms of, okay, are you using a safe harbor? Anyone who signed these forms in the past, what was their role? Like, I don't think it was as explicit in terms of who the person making that declaration was within the context of the company. But now I think that the tax authority is asking for more visibility into that. Um, mm. and, and ultimately, I think these features, these form additions are, are there basically to get more details about the intercompany transactions without having to request that the taxpayer actually file the entire transfer pricing study, which is typically about 200 pages. Yet another presentation of the old Bob or old Sue problem. We should make a note that that problem uh, transcends gender, of course. Now, what language should the documentation be submitted in? So uh, the language in its, uh, the language for documentation in Israel, it actually, um, there's no explicit requirement that it has to be in the local language. It can be in English and English is acceptable in Israel. Uh, so for it, there's no explicit requirement in this particular context, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there may not be a request for a translation, right? It's just not going to be thrown out to the extent that it's not in, in the local language. Of course. Now, turning to thresholds, what can we see here? So country by country reporting, because that's the biggest, um, right. that's the biggest 
pain in the butt, if, <laughs> if you can say, for multinationals, gathering all that information, managing all the notifications everywhere, uh, having to file it either in one jurisdiction or in surrogate jurisdictions. Um, but the the threshold as it pertains to the country by country reporting it's it's aligned with the OECD guidelines which was 750 million euros it is actually established at 3 billion new shekels which is roughly equivalent to about 880 million US dollars but it's all in line with the OECD guideline standards which was you know, 750 million euros, right? So in terms of the application of the country by country reporting. Right. And turning to benchmarking requirements, what are we seeing here? There is a requirement or a preference here to identify local comparables, right? And we see this trend more and more across a lot of jurisdictions. And as we had talked about before, Israel is an interesting market because of where it currently stands. I think the tax authorities or the ITA ultimately expect that the taxpayer make an effort to find local comparables to the extent that it's necessary, right? I mean, that, that part of that is also reliant on where the tested party is and who the tested party is. Another special component here is that the ITA typically likes to look at a single year analysis. They want to look at an interquartile range calculation using an Excel formula, but that's typically anywhere else outside of the US. The US is using uh, a, a slightly different formula in terms of the interquartile range calculation. But those are pretty much the requirements from a benchmarking perspective. It's not uncommon to see a, a jurisdiction like Israel have a preference for local comps because to apply a country risk adjustment or to control for market conditions and market factors, it's pretty difficult. Interrupting once again for the second CPE code word of this episode, and that code word is Bakri, spelled B-A-K-R-I, as in Mohammed Bakri, Palestinian Israeli director of the acclaimed film The Syrian Bride. Back to our conversation, turning to methodology, or at least uh, whether or not there's any hierarchy of methods, I'm seeing at least on the list, possibly where we tend to align Israel with emerging markets, because I'm seeing a lot of the same methods come up here. The ITA, and based on the regulations, they follow the same explicit methods that we see all the time. And then they, but they actually do outline a bit of a hierarchy, the cup method or the cut method. And it's interesting here because, you know, we've, we've talked about they're exactly the same one as a price versus a transaction, but it's really that direct price comparison. And, and as we see in emerging markets, to your point, Matt, a lot of times these jurisdictions that are perhaps where the tax authority is perhaps bit uh, less sophisticated they want when it comes to transfer pricing by the way that i want to qualify that they are they're going to rely on something that is conceptually easier to grasp which is hey you know the price of a cup of coffee is a dollar 
right? Between, between your company and an unrelated company. And so the price of that cup of coffee should be a dollar if you sell it to your related party. Then they have the same other methods that would be applicable, like the cost plus or the resale price, and then profit-based methods, right? Which are the comparable profits method or the transactional net margin method. Um, and then finally, the profit split approach. And in terms of the methods, there are always these explicit methods available, but then there's the catch-all, sort of, you know, the unspecified method, if you will. So if you need to apply a slightly different method, you can always, there's, there's always the room to go to an unspecified method if, if, ne- if necessary. A couple of things to note, because I think, I think when we talk about the application of a direct price comparison in practice, we actually, even though a government like Israel tends to want to see an interquartile range, right? And the application of the interquartile range is a statistical tool to help the reliability of the arm's length range. When the transfer pricing method is a direct transaction comparison or direct price comparison, it's not necessary to calculate the interquartile range. So that is something that we don't talk about very often. Matt, but it's an important point to note here that sometimes when you are applying a transaction-based method, you can actually rely on the full range of values because it is a direct price comparison. Something that uh, so often gets overlooked but still presents itself on seldom occasion. Now, in September 2018, the ITA finalized two draft circulars. Now, what do these circulars focus on? So the two different circulars, one actually focuses on the appropriate transfer pricing methods related to specific industries for distribution, marketing, and sale. Because when you talk about a multinational having a local presence, a lot of times those operations are set up as sort of this this distribution arm when, you know, performing marketing type of functions or sales functions. And so it is about hey, what's an appropriate method here? What are we looking for? And then it goes into, the other circular goes into what would be an appropriate level of profitability for these for specific types of transactions, right? And so they're actually taking this one step further to say, given these types of scenarios, which we've seen and observed, we would anticipate or expect to see this type of profitability for that type of operation or activity. And so it is a way for them to nudge the taxpayer, if you will, and say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Multinational Enterprise operating in Israel, keep in mind that this is what I'm expecting to see. Nudge, nudge, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, how long is benchmarking accepted? So the benchmarking requirement is interesting because it is, I think it is expected that the benchmarking analysis is updated every year. And it's pretty, um, it's pretty implicit because of the annual tax form, that form 1385 that needs to be completed. So the fact of the matter is when you have to make this declaration on an annual basis that the transactions were conducted at arm's length, 
doesn't that also mean you have to assess whether or not those transactions were conducted at arm's length given that particular time frame? There's an implicit understanding that benchmarking should be conducted annually and updated to reflect market conditions. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Going back a little bit, you or we rated Israel a high risk jurisdiction. We mentioned there is a hierarchy when it comes to methodology. How likely is it that methodology will be challenged? These days, I think the challenge on methods is pretty prevalent just because documentation, it is about understanding the business. It's about understanding why certain methods are most applicable given the context. And so the method in and of itself is definitely an area that can be challenged if the story is not told properly. Now, if the story is not told at all, for example, if there's no documentation that you have, well then clearly, yes, your method, your approach could easily be challenged. But if you have the right narrative in place and you're telling your story, about your transfer pricing policy and framework, and it guides the reader to understand exactly why certain methods were being applied, then it puts the taxpayer in a much better position. And hopefully then the focus for being challenged would be more nitpicky on the selection of comps, for example, right? So you don't want to be challenged. Hopefully you're not being challenged on the method. Being challenged on the method creates an opportunity for much bigger amounts of potential adjustments, okay? But then could you be challenged on the selection of comps? Sure, right? At any given point in time, the tax authority could pick on your comps and say, I don't like this one, I don't like this one, and challenge each of those. But in some ways, that's a little bit of a win, not a full-on win, right? But it's a little bit of a win because they're focusing on the details and the nuances of the analysis and the audit adjustment, excuse me, the adjustment potential when it comes to nitpicking the comps is not as dramatic as if they were going to be challenging the actual underlying methodology. Right, right. And even more interestingly, there are no specific industries or situations, at least on the surface, that are more likely to undergo an audit. Now, in practice, that can be a different story. In your experience, who should be careful? Well, in Israel, in particular, it's the software industry is pretty at risk, right? I think, mm -hmm. 
I think the software industry or the digital economy or that particular technology space is pretty much a target when it comes to transfer pricing. And I think a lot of times that has become the case because this business model is so prevalent these days. There are so many more businesses that are going digital that you would think it's become an important facet of how companies operate in this current economy. And technology has become an important value driver for profitability, right? Reducing overhead, reducing costs, using technology to replace antiquated and archaic systems to drive efficiencies and and drive profitability. And so I think in a lot of ways, that type of the software industry is absolutely an area of a focus for Israel, especially given that there's so many talented development operations in Israel. And there are actually a lot of companies emerging out of that market that are very technology focused. Yeah. And and that's a big part of the reason they've earned the nickname uh, Startup Nation. Now, startups can be a somewhat larger sphere in many ways to just simply tech. Obviously, there's a lot of common space in that Venn diagram. What advice do you have for startups regarding transfer pricing and what can they do to ensure they aren't blindsided down the road? This actually, this actually makes me think of a podcast, Matt, and you're the one who normally plugs other podcasts. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it makes me, it, it reminds me of the time when, oh, when we had someone who, smaller startup companies, one day they might be small and think that nobody is paying attention to them, but the next year, all of a sudden, they're extremely profitable. They become a tech unicorn and they're blowing up. Everyone's got eyes on them. They're making a lot of money and then they have no transfer pricing documentation in place and no policy and they haven't structured anything, right? So that type of situation is the type of situation you don't want to be in as you grow, as you continue to enhance your presence in other foreign jurisdictions, be mindful of what those compliance rules look like. Because even though you may not be profitable today, if you don't have the right structure in place, they can come after you once you have that profitability there. Once you start smelling like you're making money, yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. going to come after you, right? <laughs> and it's funny because I, you know, I recently talked to a company that has a, a relatively small global footprint, and yet they were so concerned about the ownership of... Uh, they're so they were so concerned with about being challenged about the ownership of IP that they were exploring the opportunity to enter into an APA in the context i mean given their facts and circumstances given that they're not even profitable and that that IP ownership has not been challenged it has not been exploited at this point I think just having good documentation is more than sufficient to protect them and to establish the framework to manage that potential risk in the future. It it doesn't need to go that far. But I think you see both sides of that, both extremes, where some companies are like, are very concerned about it because they, they have very optimistic hopes and forecasts associated with, you know, where the business is going versus the other side which might say tax, transfer pricing, who cares? We just need to grow, right? We're just growing our business and we just need to get as many customers out there and get our message out there and save the world. (laughs) 
you do a very good impersonation of of, of the startup mentality. <laughs> if this doesn't work out, apply to write for HBO and that in that show. I think that you do really well. Now, uh, I, I want to go back for a moment while at least while we're on the track of of the specific nuances of Israel as a tax jurisdiction, but also return to what we were talking about with circulars in June of this year. The ITA released tax circular one. 2020. Can you tell us more about this specific circular and what it aims to do? Yes, absolutely. I think this was what I had alluded to before, which was it was more focused on shifting the burden of proof back to the taxpayer, right? It was very much focused on the formalistic aspects of transfer pricing, meeting the requirements, making sure that the the taxpayer understands that the transfer pricing study is not up for debate, right? That the components of what they're looking for are pretty explicit, that this transfer pricing study needs to be submitted or filed in a timely manner in accordance with their standards, and that if they feel as if anything in that documentation in the report does not meet their local requirements as they outline in their rules and regulations, they will throw it out. And then the burden of proof will shift back to the taxpayer during any of the assessment procedures. And it gives them a little more authority and power. It's a big shift, if you will, sort of trending towards the Italian standards of audit, if I can, if I may, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Meaning that there's going to be more of a focus on form over substance in some ways. It's, a, it's an immediate way to create sort of low-hanging fruit. Taxpayer doesn't comply here. Oh, I'm going to take a look at you. This is going out. And then they could, because what they're basically saying is they don't even have to do an economic analysis to calculate an adjustment. They just have to put their finger in the air and say, if the taxpayer's documentation is not accepted, I should say, they just need to put their finger in the air and say, you know, I think... I think your transfer pricing amount was off by like, I don't know, 5 million. You owe me tax on that. <laughs> like, really, really crystallizing the subjectivity here. <laughs> <laughs> Amid the global pandemic, the Israeli tax authority has been busy. This October, the ITA released a draft bill that would make considerable changes to transfer pricing rules and regulations. Can you tell us more about this bill and what it could mean for taxpayers? Yes. So... There are some amendments, right, to Section 85 of this income tax ordinance. It's still in draft stages, so there are, I I think they were accepting comments until earlier this month. I think those comments are closed now. But essentially what they're doing is they're moving towards more of this BEPS Action 13 model, which is this this framework of a master file, local file, country by country reporting, um, in addition to being more explicit about having contemporaneous documentation. Now, now, as we had talked about before, they don't explicitly have a contemporaneous documentation requirement, but once they ask for it, you have 60 days to file. This is different. They're going to be more explicit about it. Even though they might not have had the requirement before, their protection was that declaration, right? That the sign-off that says, hey, this is arm's length. They felt it would force a taxpayer 
to make their economic analysis in place before they go to sign off on it, right? But but now they're just going to they're they're just being more explicit about having contemporaneous documentation, making it more in line with these the OECD minimum standards, um, and then making sure that all of the information that is being submitted in the tax return is aligned with the TAPI documentation obligations as well, right? There's going to be a new section to the ITO ultimately where the transfer pricing documentation has to be prepared for all of the different intercompany transactions that the taxpayer engages in. And there's also going to be a new section where the ultimate parent company who has a turnover of greater than, I think we talked about this, 3 billion new shekels will be required to submit the country by country reporting on the group and its activities in every jurisdiction. Now, this is not a requirement explicitly right now, but there are not as many Israel headquartered companies. Israel is still benefiting from country by country reporting by virtue of having a lot of subsidiaries operating in that location or in that jurisdiction. And so they're seeing this information. And as a result of the information that they're getting, they also want to make it more obligatory for Israeli headquartered companies to also file that information locally. And so that Israel can participate in the exchange of information under the MCAA. And interrupting a third and final time, for our CPE code word, and that third CPE code word is Rabin, R-A-B-I-N, as in Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who served two non-consecutive terms in office, once in the 70s and again in the 1990s when he won the Nobel Peace Prize hand-in-hand with Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat for their work on the Oslo Accords. Back to our conversation. Now, very similarly to a lot of countries that we've been talking about of late. I think we were using the term or at least describing at least the resources that Israel puts behind its tax authority. It's not on par, so to speak, with uh, an Australia or a Canada, uh, but very few countries put that many resources in. That being said, still a very high-risk jurisdiction, but I I think it's worth repeating, countries like Israel necessitate the need for technology. It's really the overall climate of where things are going, jurisdiction by jurisdiction all over the globe. At some point, we need technology to keep up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, technology helps us keep up with our daily lives these days. Uh, How far are you ever away from your phone? I don't know if you have a house rule or not, but (laughs) (laughs) technology plays such a tremendous role in our daily lives that when it comes to meeting compliance requirements for multinationals, it is nearly impossible to keep up with everything, all of these changes without paying mucho bucks if you have them. I mean, if you are a multinational with billions and billions of dollars and you don't care about the cost, fine. More power to you. And you can hire a bunch of people that are focused on all these specific areas of transfer pricing and gather that information. But most of us are always expected to do more with less. And in order to do more with less, you need technology, you need scalability, you need robust internal processes 
to be able to manage the ever-changing compliance burden and, and to keep on top of what is happening in the regulatory environment. Right. I'm, I'm always cognizant of the fact that as someone who's worked, you know, on the industry side, on the private side before, when I managed the end to end TP framework for MUFG Union Bank, we were trying to take a long term vision, right, of what the process looked like. And our CFO had challenged us to make sure that we create less dependency on external consultants. Why? Because, well, that's not scalable and that's not sustainable. And consultants are only as good as the people, right? Right. The, right. the people are going to rotate. Uh, we, we always thought about that and across three pillars, people, processes, and technology. And, you know, the investment in technology was significant. I mean, we, we built a, a, a platform, a, an operational framework, and spent in excess of half a million dollars. Here's where it gets even more interesting. That was for the short-term solution. And then, because the long-term solution was expected to be more like multi-million dollar project, in, because it, it's talking about tapping into the overall internal infrastructure. I mean, this is how significant technology how significant technology is within any organization, not just as it pertains to transfer pricing and tax compliance and management, but it is it touches all areas of the business. And so you don't want to continue to keep the tax department in the dark ages, right? Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp now that brings us to the rapid fire round of our show of course my favorite part and we call that what we want to know we have brand new questions for you mimi i know this is far from your first rodeo in this respect uh, even for just today this is far from your first rodeo uh, but always question one is are you ready I am ready. Question number two, when are you most inspired? You know, inspiration strikes at different times. And I think sometimes I'm inspired when I am, I feel defeated. And, and I know that's a, that's a strange answer, but I, I feel like um, when, I'm, when I'm at my lowest point or I feel defeated, I just feel like, you know, something in me helps me to, 
emerge from that through inspiration, right? Right. So, yeah, I I think that's I think that's my answer, and I'm gonna stick yeah. with it. Stick with it. <laughs> what is your favorite way to unwind after a long week? Oh, I probably have the standard answer here. I just like <laughs> a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Open up a bottle of wine, kick my feet up on the table, man, turn on the boob tube for a minute. I love HGTV. I'm telling you, if I were if I were going to do something else and in retirement, one day I'm going to flip a house. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, <laughs> gonna man. Go through the renovation and flip a house. Yeah. <laughs> now, what is something that continues to challenge you? Um, I, you know, this is, inter- uh, I'm going to answer this differently than you might expect. My husband, uh, he continues to challenge me and in a good way. And I think, I think what's really nice about the two of us is that we are polar opposites in so many ways. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I say that he challenges me, I, I do think I am saying that in a positive light. Um, he doesn't let me feel like a victim right so i right. think it i think it's i think it's very positive in which fashion trend do you just not get hmm you know i i, I would if you were to ask me this question at the beginning of the pandemic i would have said um tie-dye right like <laughs> Everyone's obsession with bringing back tie-dye. And yet, it's kind of grown on me now. So, I, I don't know. I, 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 I can see why people are bringing back the tie-dye. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's getting in touch with their inner hippie these days, just, to, just to, for only that marginal calm. Uh, now, what have you learned about yourself through your career in transfer pricing? Uh, I, I like this question because I think I think what I've learned about myself is that I will always continue to learn more. Like I think I think, and and this is specifically as it relates to transfer pricing as well, because transfer pricing is so facts and circumstances based, and every company is so different, and people are different, and the way that they think and the way that they're operating and the the business strategies or market strategies that a company might be uh, employing are different. And I enjoy learning about those differences and I enjoy hearing about them and then, you know, trying to figure out how to apply them in other contexts. Right. So I never would have called myself, um, uh, like a, a lifelong student, and I and I say that because I was I was a straight A student growing up, but I didn't love school, right? I didn't right. <laughs> love. I didn't think I loved learning, and yet in throughout my career now, I find that learning is such a. It's something that really is. Um, it helps me, right? And if mm. I stopped learning, I feel like I would just die. So, yeah. <laughs> Always have to have that one seed of curiosity. And we want to thank Mimi. Thank you so much again for being on today's show. We equally want to thank everyone at home tuning in. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify while you're there. Don't forget to check out our transfer pricing in the news podcast. All of your global headlines and reg changes in under 10 minutes. That's the Fiona Show hot off the press. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they're crazy enough to let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. We'll catch everyone next week. Until then, stay safe and wear a mask. Wear a mask.